Thank you all so much for joining me today. Before I begin, I need to pray. Father God, we just come boldly before your throne of grace. We thank you so much for being full-time in our life. We ask that you please allow us to receive your word today. Let our hearts stay softened and melted for you. God, allow us to see the things that we need to see so that we can fulfill your plan, will, and purpose, no matter what it is. God, we just ask that you continue to walk with us, that you go ahead of us and whatever whatever's going on in our life, that you go with us, that you be our rear, our rear guard. God, we thank you so much for just tuning your ears to hear our voice. We ask that you please, God, continue to guide us. Give us righteousness every step that we take, every word that we, we speak, and every thought that we think, God. Let it be inspired by you and encouraged by you. Most importantly, Lord, we ask that you please allow your will to be done in our life. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will just lead me in this discussion. Please don't let me forget anything that I need to talk about. And also, let me just minister grace to the hearer and that which is edifying to those that are lost and filled with despair. God, I just thank you right now that you just continue to give us favor in your sight. Pluck out any and everything in our lives, in our hearts, our mind, body, and soul, anything that offends you. And take it up out of us, uproot it out, God. Replace it with those things that will allow us to bloom, to grow, and to excel in understanding, in comprehension, in obedience, Lord God, and being sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, Father God, we ask that you please allow your will to be done in our life. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is still in your blood. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining me today on Miles Life and Health. Let's talk about it. So today I am going to continue on in this discussion about the future of ex-offenders in combating recidivism. So yesterday we learned that recidivism is basically repeated behavior, right? Recycled criminal behavior. And in order for us as believers in Christ, in order for us to be able to help some of the people that we know that experience a life of criminality and continue to be in and out of jail. Um, we we want to be able to pray for people. We need to encourage them. We never know what nobody is going through in life. So today I had found out that someone close to me had been um, diagnosed with cancer and I had to pray for them and it really hurts. It really does. Because when somebody else is going through something, it's like you feel what they're experiencing. Although you're not going through what they're experiencing. When you love people, you have empathy for them. There's a big difference between having sympathy and empathy. So sympathy is when you feel sorry for them, right? Empathy is when you understand their situation and you try to provide ease and relief to them, right? So I just want to talk about today how we as people and children of God, how we can really sit back and appreciate the people that we know 
and also appreciate the things that God has given us. Despite whatever you're experiencing in your life, there are a lot of people that are going through things in life that are really difficult. And no one is saying that, you know, our experiences and the things that we've endured is benign. But one thing that we do have that we can say that many of the individuals of this world don't, we have access to God. We have the ability to communicate with God on a regular basis. God really loves us. He's always attentive to hear our voice when we're making our prayers and our supplications to him. So I, I want to talk about appreciating God in your circumstance. How do you appreciate God in your, in your situation? Right? So before I get into that, I want to talk about a couple of scriptures, okay? So now, um, let me get here. So yesterday I showed the video of Jamie Foxx. I talked about how um, Jamie Foxx was really connected to that ex experience with his, his dad going to prison, his father going to prison. And so he had like an emotional experience when his father had went to jail. And so this is the first time, like I said, that I've ever heard Jamie Foxx really talk about things that were um, sensitive to him. And so this is on the Graham, um, the, the Graham show. And so this happened about three years ago, according to this YouTube video. And then now we see a 16 year old who was, you know, brought up in a single parent household. So one thing that I do want to point out in these two circumstances is that Jamie Foxx clearly did not have his dad around, right? Um, for a long or an extensive period of time. But one thing that we can gather from that information is that Jamie Foxx is a successful African-American. Success came out of his life. He's been able to, you know, um, act in a lot of different movies. He's been successfully, right? And also he's financially stable, he has um a beautiful uh daughter. I think I don't know how many kids he has all together. I just know that about one daughter so far. So the main point is, yes, he went through a, a negative experience, but guess what? He said that he took care of his dad 20 years after that. 20 years for the last 20 years. So let me just explain something that even though your situation may seem like is, you know, like really bad. You have to think about what God has planned for you. Now, Jamie Foxx is a secular, you know, act actor, and he's been in the entertainment industry for quite some time. So what I, what I do notice is that, you know, people that are not, boisterous about God, they do live a different life than people that are very boisterous about God. 
Because see, it's easy to talk about the successes and the fame and the fortune when you're not giving credit to God. So I want to point out that there is a big difference um, in people that are secular and people that are children of God in the entertainment industry. I mean, when I say children of God, I'm, I'm speaking from a perspective of individuals that are boisterous about God. Pretty much every single time they're on television, right? So I want to point that out too. That we don't see too many individuals that are in their entertainment industry really, you know, being that boisterous about God. There are. And um, I I am going to post a video of that, of them too. I just want to let you all know that and despite whatever you're experiencing, whatever the enemy intends for bad, God can turn around for good. So... Although Jamie Foxx went through this experience in his life, he's proved to be successful here in, in this world financially to the point where he was able to still take care of his dad for the last 20 years. Okay. The next thing is the video with the 16 year old. She was brought up in a single parent household where her brother had to look after her and practically help raise her right because her brother is older than her but look at this despite all of that despite her experience and not being connected with her dad her father right you have to look at the fact that this 16 year old child has made it to ted talk ted talk isn't something that's just you know, you can just go on the show and just be invited, right? You, yeah, you can, but there, it's a rigorous process in order to be a speaker on TED Talk. So it's not too many times you're going to see a 16-year-old actually on TED Talk. So clearly, she's prevailing in some area of her life in order to be on TED Talk. I, I would be very excited to see where she is by the time she's 30. So, um, now these are some secular beliefs. I also want to just point out that, you know, it can be difficult sometimes when people are going through life and they don't include God in their life. You know, it's not like for me, for instance, I, I had my grandmother who pray with me, but it wasn't like we always went to church when I was a kid, you know? So my mom wasn't into that, like church stuff. I wasn't going to church a lot when I was a kid. I wasn't, you know, it was a lot of different things that we wasn't doing in our household. So let me explain, like, you may not come from a background that, you know, is have God, you know, where God is always being polarized in your life. You may not come from a background where you can go to church and be amongst other people who are believers in God and, and, and serve Christ. So the point of the matter is, is that 
You can do the most with what you do have. And how do we do the most? Well, we read God's word. So I want to go to this scripture. I want to go to um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So that's Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Okay. It says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. It's like, okay, let me read that again. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. So whenever you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, what that means is that from the moment you receive God in your life, that should have been the moment your life changed. The moment you receive Christ, you will continue to live your lives in him. And so what that means is that when I accepted God into my life, See, I may have received Christ, right? And at the point, it was a point in my life where I was actually just going to church all the time. And when I got married, I used to go to church five times a week. And so God was a very big influence in my life. And then things sort of changed, right? So there is one thing when you believe God and you receive Jesus and then you backslide. But let me, let me explain this. Whatever it is that you're going through, when you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord, there are going to be things in your life where you're going to feel convicted about doing. So God isn't going to actually just you know, leave you in your situation, whatever it is that you're enduring in life, just say you have a problem with addiction. And maybe addiction have led you to making some wrong decisions. And those decisions have maybe landed you in jail. Or if it didn't lead you in jail, it maybe caused you to lose some friendships. Maybe it caused distrust in your family. Whatever the case may be, when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, right? We begin to live our lives in him. So that means that we're no longer tempted by the things that we used to be tempted by. Because it was a pastor recently that I heard. I don't remember his name. I I was hoping that I could remember his name. I was looking at a TikTok video and he said, the things that tempted you before will become disgusting to you. So it's like when you receive Christ Jesus, 
You're no longer interested in those old things. You're no longer interested in doing the things that led you to jail. You're no longer interested in doing things that causes distrust. You're not interested in those things. So in verse seven, it says rooted and built up in him. So, so in verse six, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So you're living your life in God. You no longer have the same temptations anymore. Now your, your temptation is instead of reading the Bible for an hour, you end up reading it for four hours when you know you have other stuff to do. That's a temptation. Well, Lord, you know, I, this is so interesting. I think I'm, I'm going to read it a little longer tonight. Or well, I'm going to work on this a little longer than before. God, I, I just, I'm so excited about talking to you. I just want to stay in this moment. It's this moment right here, God. This moment of time that I'm spending with you. Your temptation isn't the same the way that it used to be. Verse seven says, it's rooted and built up in him. So you, this is when you have spiritual fullness in Christ. You become spiritually full because it's like, okay, God, see, I want more of this. I want more of you. You become strengthened in the faith as you are taught in his word, right? How are you taught? Well, some people are taught by their parents, family members, um, maybe their neighbors, you know, their friends, network. Whoever that may be, or you're you're reading the word yourself. But it says, strengthen in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So, no matter what we go through, once you receive Christ Jesus, you can't live the same way no more. You're no longer interested in those things some people like well see i mean i love god but i don't want to be bored like what you mean i'm not bored (laughs) you know like are you you suggesting that i'm bored i'm not bored okay i have so much work to do I sometimes I feel like I don't have enough time to finish it. And then I'm I'm tired. It was like, okay, God, I'm sleepy now. God, thank you for giving me that burst of energy because I needed that. So the Holy Spirit rejuvenates you. The Holy Spirit refuels you. The, the Holy Spirit is your energy source. It's like God is giving you everything you need with the Holy Spirit. You get interpretation of the word. God keeps you a million steps ahead of everything. You know, everything, you know, God, you be, you be, 
you become spiritually full in Christ. But the point of the matter is, is this. How can you get there if you won't receive Christ? See, there are so many people in this world that really complains about their life and they complain about their situation and they go through experience and all you hear is excuse after excuse after excuse. <clears throat> and it's like, wait a minute. Did you know that there are people out here that have a, a expected end date? Like I just said, my friend was diagnosed with cancer today. But just because that was the diagnosis, that's not her end. And the reason why is because, see, we accept God's plan in her life. But what about the people who are not aware of God's plan? What about the people who can't experience fullness in Christ? What about the people who are not rooted and built up in Christ? So, yeah, they say, oh, well, see, I, love, I do love God and I believe in God, but that don't mean that I don't want to have fun. Well, that don't mean that I want to live my life and be bored. Or well, that don't mean I want to do this and not be able to do that. See, before you receive Christ, you're sitting here putting stipulations on how you want your relationship. Like you the creator. And God is his creation. Oh, you know, I'm trying to live my life. Well, I know what I want. Yes, I love God, but I'm not going to do. And I'm not going to do. And I'm not going to do this. And I'm not going to do that. You didn't put all these provisions in place before you even received God. There are people who lack the full, complete understanding of having Christ in their life because they have disallowed God to operate and function in their life. So they don't know what real peace feel like. Because I can tell you right now, I have peace that surpasses all understanding. God is the provider. No matter what the situation no matter what the situation may look like externally, external factors can influence God's ability in my life. So whatever it is you're going through in your life, don't allow external conditions to to disrupt a great relationship that you can have with God. Oh, because see, I'm just not, oh, some people, I, they say, oh, I'm just not ready yet. You know, just, I need a little bit more time. I need a little bit more time. What little bit time? You, you supposed to go to God as you are. 
What how you what you thought you was gonna build yourself up and then be able to be right with God? No, you go to God while you messed up. You need to talk to God while you're high. Talk to God while you're drunk. Talk to God in whatever way you are. It doesn't matter what position you in right now. You can't get yourself right. That was the purpose of him allowing you to talk to him. See, there's another scripture that I want to talk about. So... If you go to your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 to 11, it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So let me explain this. What this means is that in your weakness, when you call on God, you become the strongest. You know why? Because your weakness allows you to get frustrated. Your weakness gives you the ability to want better for yourself. Your weakness allows you to thirst for greater things. I have seen people so tired of stuff that when they would say, look, I can't deal with it no more. They're beyond frustrated. See, you thinking it is a, it's just a weakness. It is. But your weakness will be made perfect. Because God's strength, his power is made perfect in your weakness because when you're weak you you like look you don't know how to how you gonna feed your kids some people they don't the holidays is so stressful trust and believe me i i volunteer at a crisis center so i know The holidays, talking about the holiday now, even though I don't, I don't not caught up on the holiday. I don't celebrate it. Like I do celebrate my birthday. One of my friends say, well, I know you don't, you don't really celebrate birthdays and stuff. No, no, no. I do celebrate my birthday because that's my new year that God gave me. So my birthday is a new year that God has blessed me to be able to fulfill what his plan is. So going back to trying, just understanding that these pagan days, these are pagan holidays. 
But these holidays are attached to a lot of negative experiences with people. So I want you all to know that sometimes holidays can cause people to do things that's out of their character. It's like, okay, um, I need to feed my kids and I need some money. So what do I do? Some people think that the holidays calls for desperate measures. But what they don't realize is that when they become repeat offenders, they end up back in jail away from all the people that love them. Because even if you think that no one loves you, somebody loves you. You are important. You have to give yourself the opportunity to allow God to be made perfect in your weakness. It's not about desperate times calls for desperate measures. No. See, with God, yes, you may go through some things because in your weakness. See, many times when you have habits. You have to get frustrated with those habits. You got to get frustrated about certain situations. You have to say, look, look, I'm, I'm just fed up with it. God, I want better for myself. I want better for my life. See, you don't get there. And see you all the way feeling weak. It's like sometimes when, when, when some people, they'll say like, you just don't understand. I'm never, ever in my life, ever, ever dating nobody else like that ever again. And then the person you're telling it to is like, okay, well, you know, you said that before. And it's like, at that moment, that was the last time they dated that person. See, some people, they know when they fed up and when they frustrated enough. See, you, you have to get sick of sin before it consumes you. And what I mean by consuming you is that you like, okay, well, see, I'm comfortable with this. You comfortable with your life, right? You comfortable with your circumstance. That means you're you comfortable with sin. When God is excluded, you are how comfortable are you with sin? Because everybody's sin, but do you get tired of sin? Do you get tired of the situations and experiences that you're going through? If you're not getting tired of it, that means you're comfortable. See, God wants to give you blessings so that you could be blessed to be a blessing. But when you get so comfortable with what you have, how can you allow God to bless you? Don't get comfortable with it. 
going back to Colossians 2, 6 and 7, once we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So we're not going to be tempted with the same old things. So I wanted to go over some um some statistics. I yesterday I played the um Bill Moyers uh video about race and politics in American cities, right? Um I also had mentioned a few statistics, but I found a better website. Um, it's actually from the Anne E. Casey Foundation. So the Anne E. Casey Foundation, let me go over some of their uh, history. So they have been around for more than 100 years. Um, and Annie E. Casey, it's Annie. I'm sorry, it's not Anne. It's Annie E. Casey. Annie E. Casey was a widow raising her four children near Seattle. Her sacrifice and struggles deeply affected her eldest, um, Jim, who dedicated his life to creating an enduring legacy of service to children and families in America. So um, focusing on the work of the foundation from 1990s to 2010, um, the film tells a powerful personal story of their lives, families, and communities, and how they were transformed through the loving bequest of UPS founder, Jim Casey. So um, it gives you like a brief brief history about uh, the, the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And so I wanted to kind of go over some statistics that they have here. They have some incredible statistics. And so this blog, um, is on child well-being and single parent families okay it was updated june 23rd 2023 the original post was um made august 1st of 2022 so i'll be posting some of these statistics i'm just i have to do a lot of stuff with the website in order for me to make sure that i'm um utilizing the amount of correct amount of storage okay because each time i make a post and i'm adding more information to it it consumes storage and i'm just trying to be able to figure out how i need to sort of archive some things and move and shift shift some things around so looking at this topic here child where well-being and single parent families right so the statistics the statistics about children and single parent families are 24 million children live in single parent families. Okay. 14.5 million live in mother only households. Okay. Mother only households. That's almost 15 million children that are in mother only households. Six million kids live with cohabitating parents, okay? Those are parents that, you know, they work together to raise the, ch the children. They work, you know, co-parenting from maybe this home to the next home, you know, this from mom's home to dad's home, mom's home to dad's home. That's cohabitating parents, okay? 
So 6 million of those children. Now you have about 3.5 million kids who live in father-only households. Father-only. Okay. Now it says black and American Indian. Oh, and I'm sorry. Those statistics were generated around uh, 2021. Okay. So moving forward on race and ethnicity, black and American Indian or Alaskan native kids are most likely to live in a single parent family. 64% of black children and 49% of American Indian or Alaskan native children fit this demographic. So amongst the 24 million children that are in single parent household, almost 15 million of those kids are in mother only household. And amongst those children, you have 64% of those children are black. That's more than half of the African-American population of children who are being raised in single parent households. 49% of American Indian or Alaskan Native fits this demographic. So you have approximately 50% of American Indian or Alaskan Native. You have 24% of white children and 16% of Asian and Pacific Islander children who are in single parent households. Latino children and multiracial kids fall in the middle between 42% and 38% of kids live in single parent household. So family nativity makes a difference. 37% of kids in U.S. born families live in a single parent household compared to just 24% of kids in immigrant families. So this is a major concern. I really would like to talk about how, how and what is contributing these staggering statistics. We have over 64% of black children living in single parent families. So one thing I can say is this, one thing about statistics is that it tells a story. What is this story saying about these statistics? What can you gather from this information? 64% of black kids live in single parent households. 49% of American Indian or Alaska Native. 
while 42% and 38 to 42 and 38% of Latino and multiracial kids are also in single parent household. 24% white, 16% Asian. So just for me looking at these statistics, what it tells me is that there are some strong values within the Asian and Pacific Islander people, population. Because they have the lowest rate of single parent household. So one thing I do know about Asians is they are very family oriented. They really believe in taking care of the elderly, their family, and everything else. Even in their level of generosity, they're a proven statistic to show that Asians, they give more for their causes. They support many of their causes and philanthropy. So let me, I wanted to pull up this article so that we can identify just, let's look at the Asians populations and philanthropy. So it says, um, wait one second here. So, um, Asians, uh, Asian populations and, and philanthropy, they support their causes because of intergenerational communication. So when you think about intergenerational trauma, people experience, they call it generational curse. People, people experiences, they sometimes go through generational curses. But on the other hand, there are many times people may go through intergenerational levels of generosity. So they know how to give, when to give because of how they were taught. So they have intergenerational transmissions of generosity. Some people have intergenerational transmissions of avoidance. Some people have intergenerational transmissions of, of uh, love, right? So there's all these different types of intergenerational transmissions. But when it comes to Asians um, giving and um, supporting their causes, they always give to support 
their um their causes and philanthropy So in, in one article from Forbes, it says Asia's 2019 Heroes of Philanthropy, Catalyst for Change. This is an article by Grace Chung, um, which is a Forbes staff. Uh, so she talks about Asia's most generous philanthropist by donating $7.6 billion worth of repro shares to his Education Center Foundation raising his total lifetime giving to 21 billion dollars so this foundation has been giving billions of dollars to support entrepreneurs and celebrities across the region who are committed to solving some of the most pressing issues facing the asia pacific so oh Almost $21 billion has been given to support pressing issues facing the Asia Pacific. And this is an article by Forbes titled Asia's 2019 Heroes of Philanthropy, Catalyst for Change. So if we were to sort of just use this article, right? Um, just this article by itself. And then we look at the statistics, okay, of child where the child well-being article from um Annie E. Casey's foundation. And we see these staggering statistics are all over the place for many of the minorities. Now, Asians and Pacific Islander children, they are considered minorities. But if we were to do an intersectionality cross-section of maybe X-axis and Y-axis, we see that 16% of Asian and Pacific Islander children are raised in single parent households. That is way below the average for 64% of black children compared to 49% of American Indian, also 42% of Latina, Latino, 37% of a uh of kids 37 total percent of kids born in in single parent households compared to 24% of immigrants. So we see that Asian and Pacific Islander children are at the lowest rank for single parent households. So just say we were to do a X axis, Y axis, intersectionality. So intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw, she attempts to sort of dissect many of these social disparities by intersecting what the issue could be. So for instance, since I'm pretty optimistic about things and I would really like to look at how Asian and Pacific Islander children are able to maintain such a strong family household. So 
I know one thing about Asians and the fact that they love giving to support. Now they support their causes. And I'm not saying that this is just specific to one group, which is only Asians. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the statistics show that they really do support their causes for philanthropy. And I, I hope that I'm not saying that in an offensive way because I'm really not trying to be offensive. I was just trying to identify a gap, right? Um, in research where we can maybe align maybe the level of generosity and family values could be intersecting with the fact that they have such strong family values. So their level of intergenerational transmissions of giving, which intergenerational transmissions are generated by your parents and what you've learned. Now, this could be these could be your biological parents, your guardians, however you were raised. Your intergenerational transmissions are your pre-existing thoughts and belief systems. So there is a connection in values. So if you read, read that article, I'll post this article and I'll do a, um, you know, a what if analysis of the Asian population and their level of values could their values be really impacting the fact that they have parents in households instead of single parent households as other populations of people have so um there are, are a couple of things that we can consider within the Black and American Indian or Alaska Native kids. Um, but I want to kind of move forward to looking at some of these statistics from the perspective of Annie E. Casey's foundation. Okay. So they, they talk about here um, some statistics on single parent homes and poverty consist of nearly 30% of single parents lived in poverty and only six percent are married couples so what we see here is that there's an intersection between single parent homes and poverty that would be the intersectionality of that single parents and poverty Also, some common challenges of single parent families. More than 20% of children born to married couples will experience a divorce by the age of nine. So marriage is not something that is valued. So we see only 6% of married couples live in poverty and of those people we see that that 
20% of those children that are born to married couples will go through a divorce. Their families there will go through a divorce. So by the age of nine and more than 50% of kids born to cohabitating couples will experience a parental breakup according to some estimates. So the cohabitating parents could also include these married couples. Okay. And, um, when we're looking at parents that are transitioning, um, this could, could disrupt a child's routine. It can. It could disrupt their education, their housing, um, their housing arrangement, including a family income disposition, right? It can also be very difficult. It can also cause trauma in their lives. I know for me that my kids, you know, like divorce was something that was strong they did not like that my son was really really impacted by the divorce so you know i would say that when you marry someone you believe that you're going to spend the rest of your life with them your intent is to spend the rest of your life with them. And many times that doesn't take place. But that doesn't mean that you give up hope. Whatever you're experiencing, you have to focus on what can you do right now in order to move forward in your life. Right now, how can God help you now in your situation? Can you pray to God? Can you talk to God? God will give you all the answers that you need. Just listen to God. God will never, ever give you bad advice. God will never, ever guide you anywhere that will lead something bad happening to you. So it shows here that compared to kids in married parent household, children and single parent families are more likely to experience poor outcomes. There are some complexities to this research because a lot of it sometimes involves contradictions with some of the underlying factors, such as strong and stable relationships. Um, you have to do the intersection of mental health, right? The cross-section of, of poverty, single parent, and mental health. Socioeconomic status and barriers. Structural changes. Are the environments nurturing and have strong relationships? If, if they don't, why don't they? There are consequences to growing up poor but guess what there are also a lot of benefits to growing up poor have you seen some of, of the sports um players you know like you have Derry rose he grew up in poverty now he's a, a multi-millionaire you have people like um 
LeBron James who grew up in poverty. So yes, growing up poor can have both benefits and consequences. Because once you grow up poor, you're going when you're not poor anymore, you appreciate life different. You appreciate the things that God has given you. And I actually wrote about this on one of my um, research papers about the apartheid education system and how when you're growing up poor, you know, yes, a lot of people, they do look down on the poor. But guess what? When you, when you transition out of poverty, you appreciate things. You appreciate it and much more compared to if something was just handed to you and given to you. Or if you're a trustee baby. So, yes, there are consequences of growing up poor, but there are also some benefits because you, you're going to appreciate, you know, the blessings that God give you. And so that depends on your perception of what a blessing is. A lot of times people associate blessings with financial possessions and they also associate materialistic things that is vanity and um, deterior deteriorate and depreciate in value. And they, they look at those things as blessings. So it's really about your perspective and what you consider to be a blessing. So for me, because see, I love, I could talk about me because when you talk about other people, sometimes they get offended, but that doesn't make a difference to me either. I'm not a people pleaser. I'm sure that everybody noticed that by now, right? Um, and so God wants us to be able to be transparent about our lives. You see how Jesus, when he was here on earth, he walked the earth. He went everywhere. He was walking everywhere. His life was an open book. So what I've noticed is, is that when Jesus, he went town to town to town and people were talking about him everywhere. His life was a living open book for people to see. So there is no reason to try to hide this or hide, hide your life. What are you hiding? What do you need to hide that's so top secret? You know, so so God was here on earth and he was 100% man and 100% God. But yet and still, everybody knew what he was doing. He didn't hide anything. So if we are we are like God. We should be living our lives like him. So if you mess up, just, just talk about your mess up. It's okay. People going to talk about you. But God know that when you can acknowledge your mistakes then that means that you're that much closer to moving on from them and learning from them. The lack of acknowledgement tells, tells you that many they're not able to even acknowledge that an issue exists. So you can't change what you don't identify. You cannot change what you don't identify. And so what that means is that when you talk about your mistakes and you talk about your problems, you can acknowledge, okay, so how did I contribute to this problem? 
how did I, you know, participate in this situation happening to me instead of you scapegoating it and scapegoating is blaming other people, right? So we don't do that. Well, some people do. But I'm talking to the people who don't do that. So that's not true. So what's the important thing here is to understand that when we all make mistakes, we have to know that your life should be an open book. What are you hiding? It's no reason to hide anything. You are who you are. Let them say what they want to say. You know what you're doing in your life, right? Okay, if you mess up, admit it, acknowledge it. And move on because that's how you move on. You move on with God. You do your do your acknowledgement. It allows you to be humble. When you when you admit your mistake, when you acknowledge your wrong, you are on the road to being humble. It's very difficult to sit here and talk about. You know, sometimes when you're wrong, you know, it is. Some some conversations that I have had have was challenging. <laughs> like, oh, I did not think I was going to be talking about that. Like, no, I don't want to talk about that. God, like, th this is what I want you to talk about. <laughs> God say, tell your testimony on this situation. And I just be like, oh, Lord, okay, yes, God. I say yes to you. I can do this. And then and what's really tripped out is that, like, I've overcome. So why, why is it so hard for me to talk about it? And I overcame. Well, because people, you naturally don't want to talk about your wrongs. But God is saying, look, get into the habit of talking about your wrongs. See, I stayed with my ex-husband for a long time because that man would tell me the truth. And nobody understood that. They'll be like, how do you stay with him so long like that? All the stuff that he be doing. I just, <laughs> you y'all just don't understand and know this man would tell me the truth. And I just be like, oh, I just kind of feel, I be like, okay. He be like, well, you know, I cheated. I just couldn't help myself. I was like, what you mean? Well, you couldn't help yourself. What was wrong? <laughs> now I'm just like, I want to see him do better. But now you just keep slipping up and cheating with the same girls. Like, why? You know, so it, I, I get it. It is me as a wife, too, because I have to think about how did I contribute to my husband wanting to go and, you know, have other women. It isn't it wasn't just him. The Bible tells us clearly do not deprive your your. Let me go to that scripture so I can give the exact scripture. Do not deprive your husband. Do not deprive one another. Right. Um, this is in first Corinthians chapter seven, verse five through 16. It says, do not deprive each other except 
perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So what this means is that you don't deprive each other of intimacy. Okay. Because the only time you would do that is when like you're fasting or something like that, you know, but normally you, you shouldn't be just depriving your spouse of their need. Right. And when you do devote yourself to prayer and fasting, you need to make sure you set a time so that the devil won't come and to tempt your, your marriage. See, this is what it says specifically. I want to read the um, NIV version and I'm going to read the King James versions for people who really like the uh, King James. So it says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what this tells us is that we're, we're going to, people are going to have a lack of self-control. The people that are married are going to have a lack of self-control. That's what, this is why the Bible says that if, if you have a lack of self-control, you should marry. But if you don't, you should remain unmarried. So this scripture is simply saying here that then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has one gift, another has that. So it says now, um, moving down, let's go to uh, verse 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, it says to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what this means is, the unbelieving wife will bring sanctification in her marriage and the unbelieving, the believing, I'm sorry, the believing wife will bring sanctification in her marriage and the believing husband will bring sanctification in a marriage. So what does this all tells us? It tells us a lot about the household. So going back to the staggering statistics of 64%, 64%, okay, 64% of black American kids are in single parent families. And we see that 6%, 6%, right, are, wait, wait, where did I see the 6%? I was trying to find it. Had something, um... Oh, it says more than 6 million kids live with cohabitating parents. So this tells us a lot. This, this gives us so much 
information that single parent households within the black American community, a population of people. Marriage is not at the top of the to-do list. Because if marriage was at the top of the to-do list, it would not be 64% of black American children and single parent families. So the cross-section, the intersectionality clearly is what? Marriage and family values. So what I can conclude from these statistics is the higher rates, the higher the number of single parent households, the higher the rate of a lack of support for family marriage, for marriages. Well, I might as well just say it. The higher rate of single parent household, the higher number that there is a lack of values for marriage. Because it would not be a single parent household if the person was married. So that tells us that of these 64% of black children that are raised in single parent households, it could include parents that do not value marriage, but it also can include other factors. So I don't want to exclude those factors. Those factors could be poverty. It could be the fact that you know, like Jamie Foxx's father went to jail, right? You have the impact on development. Some children have ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences, which they have toxic stress. And many times those could lead to divorce. And so now those parents are divorced. You can also have um, changes in the way that parents spend time together that which can contribute to their overall um, separation in their relationship or marriage. The safety net for families could be, you know, threatened, meaning like they could be faced with so much um, poverty that they are no longer able to provide uh, suitable or safe, safe housing. So they may have instability that causes them to have like parental stress, which could also contribute to um, impact to education and family, uh, you know, weaknesses. This could cause stress on children. And so there are so many other different connections that you can look at how economic the lack of economic opportunity child poverty um racial inequity um problems and disparities so there are a lot of different factors that could be contributing to the overall 
well-being of the child in single-parent households. So I'll post this article too, including the one from Forbes uh, where it discusses Asia, um, Asia's heroes of philanthropy. Um, but I, I wanted to reflect on the other um, scripture in King James. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again, verse 5 through 16. And so instead of saying, do not deprive, it says, defraud ye not one another. Except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. That Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Uh, what is it? Incontinency. So for you not being intimate with your spouse, incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I, that all men were even as myself, but every man had his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. In verse 12, it says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And a woman which hath an husband that believe it not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Elsewhere, your children unclean, but now are they holy. So, clearly, family values are important according to scriptures to the point where it talks about not depriving your spouse of intimacy there are so many scriptures that i've already went over let's let's look at another scripture here so a man leaves his father and mother and is united into his wife and the two become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Also, it says in 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. And I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Clearly. God. Has stipulated. The order. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So after going over those statistics. Right. I would like to talk about misogyny and also um, some issues with how a lot of people perceive the Bible. They really do perceive the Bible as women being demeaned or something. But it isn't true. People are interpreting the word of God in a way that the word of God is not even saying it. God, that's not what the word, that's not what the Bible said. You have to read that whole story. You don't read, you don't take one word and say, oh, this happened. No, 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 no. What happened before that and what happened after that? You're supposed to read the whole little section that you're reading. Read the sentence before 
Read the sentence after, please. So society has been so caught up into jazz, you know, reading whatever fits the justification for their story. And they don't read the entire part of the, the scripture. So now, um, since people are growing, they're growing up and understanding God's word. They're no longer babies where they need milk. They're grown. And now they understand God word that you need to read the sentence before a couple sentences before and after so that you can understand what story are you reading in the Bible? You don't just pick one sentence out and say, okay, well, this is what this says. And this applies to everybody. Well, what was happening in that scripture? What story or parable was it explaining? Or was it something like in Proverbs, where if you read something in Proverbs, you know, that that one verse is the story. So moving forward, I um yesterday I had talked about um some of the gang violence and how it contributes to the communities and urban cities and how there is a direct correlation. So there's an x-axis for drugs and the y-axis for gang violence. But what is contributing to drugs and gangs? Well, there is a devastating impact of education. So we see that the main issue is the correlation between crime and education. That's the intersection for drugs and gangs. And see, it's so many, so many people will they they say, well, you know, intersectionality is a feminist approach. No, 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 no. I want you all and everybody else to know. I'm gonna read it exactly the way it says on Wikipedia, since Wikipedia has misdefined um intersectionality. So intersectionality is a great approach. Okay. Let's see. Oh, looks like they kind of changed it. Well, doesn't say that anymore. Well, that's that's different. Now, it doesn't say feminist approach anymore. Okay, so that's really good. All right, now. So, um that no no need for me to talk about that, but the good thing about it is we making progress. All right. So this is good. So at first the intersectionality was defined as a feminist approach. Now they're defining it as intersectionality is an analytical framework for understanding how individuals, various social and political identities result in unique combinations of discrimination and privilege. Intersectionality identifies multiple factors of advantage and disadvantage. Examples of these factors include gender, um, caste, sex, race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, religion, disability, weight, species, and physical appearance. These intersecting and over, overlapping, overlapping social identities may be both empowering and oppressing. However, little good quality quantitative research. See, that's that isn't like a demystified understanding of it. 
But it does talk about in the fourth paragraph, criticisms include the framework tendency to reduce individuals to specific demographic factors and its use as an ideological tool against other feminist theory. Yes, that's true. They do actually go against some feminist theories. So when we think of intersectionality, we could use intersectionality for whatever we want to use it for. It could be, you know, for instance, a lack of communication with your neighbors. For instance, maybe some of your neighbors speak and the other neighbors, they don't. So what could be causing some neighbors to speak and what could be causing some neighbors not to speak? Well, think about it. Where are you living? What is your zip code? What area are you residing in? That, that the, demo, the geographic location matters. So we see that people in the South and in, um, in Southern states, they are more friendly than people that are in Northern states. These are proven statistics. They're more approachable. They're friendlier. So if you riding past me in Memphis and you just wave, I'm gonna wave back. But if you in Chicago, it's like, well, wait, well, what's up with you? And then if you staring at people in Chicago, you might get shot. You know, like who? Well, well, who you looking? What's up? Why you staring like that? What's going on with you? Why you looking at me like that? You going in the store and you staring at somebody? Don't stare. What, you got a problem with something? You, <laughs> but in Memphis, somebody could be like looking at you to say, you know, hey, I like your shoes. Where you get them? In Chicago, it's no. What? What's up? Why you looking like that? It's it's about to be a staring war. Don't stare for more than 10 seconds. That's the, some of Chicago advice to everybody else in the world, okay? So um I'm just I'm just playing right. <laughs> but I am telling the truth in some areas. You wanna, you know, not stare at people, but you also don't live in fear. So it's like, okay, what's up? You know, so just looking at the intersectionality, we're gonna look at why so so the intersectionality will identify and say look the people in in the south they have more of a approachable personality individuals in the north in the north do not and so guess what that says okay the x-axis says people in the south are more approachable people in the north are not that's the x-axis the y-axis is saying, okay, so why are the people in the South more approachable and why are the people in the North not? So it'll identify and say, okay, well, see people in the North, due to crime, the high rate of crime, their lack of trust for people is higher than the, than the trust levels for people in the South. Maybe that is the issue. So you can cross and intersect those two things and identify the specific reason. And now researchers can say, okay, well, let me go and check and see, could that possibly be a reason why people in the South are more friendlier than people in the North? Is it because of the lack of trust due to the crime rate? Does the crime rate have a correlation with the way we engage with our neighbors, with the way we engage in our city? 
Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to think of such great ideas like me to come up with the intersectionality of these analytical frameworks. I'm just saying God allows me to see things from a different perspective. So there could be a correlation with the crime rate and how friendly people are. All right, now moving on. So when we are looking at drugs and gang violence, there is a correlation between education and crime. Education and crime is such a long topic you all i have so much information to share on education and crime the crime rate that that is going i'm gonna I'm dedicate probably an entire week to that discussion okay so that is going to take some time so right now i just want to focus on the correlation and identifying some of these barriers right so in order for us to understand how people are looking at race they usually look at race as a social construct but race it should not be a social construct okay first of all our understanding is that in the educational setting race must be equally distributed but the problem is is that when you're a student and you're in a school where they don't have air conditioning that could impact your ability to pay attention it's like oh it's so hot i'm sweating i mean you know but if you go to a different school maybe in suburbia they're gonna have educate they're gonna have air conditioning so their students can can learn some places they don't have they don't have heat some some of the uh generators are broken down and so students have to come to school and they have heaters plugged up in the classroom. They don't have like the heat connected to the building. So what they've done is there's a intersection between education and academic settings and the infrastructure of academic settings. So when my when my son, my youngest son, when he was in um like kindergarten and then first grade, my child was like he thought school was a social event, okay? Um but <laughs> it it definitely was not. So I really had to really do a lot of volunteering. And so I ended up becoming the chair of the local school council and so when you are the chair of a local school council what it does is i have the ability to um to vote the president of the school i have the ability to vote people in and out of the school i am the highest member on the at the school so i am the chair of the local school council and so what that incorporated was making sure that our students not just my child because i look at my child as just you know like someone who's influencing other students so my son 
have to be you know like a good student i tried to make sure that he's being good but so many times like i said he would think that it was a social event and i would have to explain to him that your behavior it could impact other students and how would you feel if another student was impacting you while you're learning and you came home and said mommy mommy they were just playing and they were talking and they was doing this how would that make you feel how would that make you feel if i didn't do anything as your mom and you telling me that this other student is bothering the class so just making sure that our children have accountability we are not only going to make sure that they have accountability but we also have to make sure that the school is taking on the necessary accountability and ownership that they need to it's the principal doing what they're supposed to do with the funds that have been allocated for them so i'm a very active parent i was i am over the top okay my kids i'm gonna just be very honest my kids think that i am a very strict parent they do and it's because of my experience and you know many times i have these i have my perception of them and the perception that i have you know i i really think uh, highly of them and so i guess with my perception of them they are looking at it like okay i i want to live my life and not meet your demand i don't have a demand though it's just that i just see them as being a, at a certain level of great right and that's just me as a parent but i'm was all i'm actively involved so the school that my son went to it's this is a very good school but they didn't have a library so many of the schools in chicago they don't have they don't have school libraries okay um not schools that are in like i would say i would just say pretty much 80 percent of all schools in chicago do not have school libraries period now they do partner with the chicago public library but they don't have school libraries that's not something that's um like oh i'm going to the library like no okay so i was able to make sure i actually donated about 20 hours a week to make sure that i created a space where we were able to set up a school library and this was at chicago south shore south shore elementary school this is right here on um like 71st in dorchester i was the chair of the local school council and so i rehabilitated the entire school library there was no place for the library there were no books in the library none of the none of the books in the library the little books that we had none of them were labeled um so i organized the entire library put all of the books i labeled all the books i put everything in chronological order by topic um and i basically fixed the entire library because books are important for our students so even if they don't have a space you know at home or maybe they don't have a you know a space to be able to read at least they can come to school and be able to come here and read a book
So it isn't about the difference that other people can make. It's about the small difference that you can make. Yes, that took a lot of time. And yes, they were able to bring in the books that were arch archived and everything else. And they brought them in. It took at least about three months just to get the labels. To get the labels approved. After, after I presented the bill to the local school council to be voted on, we had to wait for the approval for the library. And then after that, we had to wait on the labels for the books. The approval for the labels, for the books. And I'm donating my time. So I'm here. I, I had restructured the entire library. Was All the books was in order. I hadn't even got the labels yet. I was still waiting on the labels for months. After I had organized all the books that was brought in for the students. So I did all of that on my own. Because I was dedicated to making sure that these students have a school library. So when we look at education and we see that there, there is supposed to be an equal distribution of education, there is not an equal distribution of education. We see that the intersection of learning can be impacted by infrastructure, also by residential segregation, which is racial de facto segregation. Then we see race and social service, in my opinion, can be biased because minorities are being reported based on the race that they identify with, when in fact, they could be of another race. So how can statistics be accurate when the United States Census Bureau have been undercounting the minority votes? So let's look at that. I want to look at that. I have about, uh, actually four different news articles that talks about how the United States Census Bureau, let's go there, because the, they actually admitted to um, undercounting the vote, votes. Here we go. So I posted the links on the blog. So this is under the United States Census Bureau, 2020. The Census Bureau released estimates of undercount and overcount in the 2020 census. So they actually have edited this from the last time I checked, right? Because guess what? They did not overcount anything. They had undercounted everything. So they un undercounted here. It says uh, March 10, 2022. This is actually from the Census Bureau that reports for 2020 census counts. So the two analyses are from the post um numeration survey which is pes and a demographic analysis estimates and they estimate how well the 2020 census counted everyone in the nation and in certain demographic groups they estimate the size of the u.s population and then compare those estimates to the census counts however look at this it says now according to pes the pes is the post um you know, uh numeration survey right um, and so 
According to that, they found that the 2020 census had neither an undercount nor an overcount for the nation. It estimated a net cover error of negative 0.24% of around 782,000 people. Let me explain this. The normal cause for error is 0.5. There is always going to be a 0.5% margin of human error. The issue with this is that now they have corrected this this um this this uh article. This article was not saying this when I when I had read it initially and it's fine because people do have access where they can go back and edit it. The issue that I have here is the fact that they're talking about now that is at point negative point two four. That is a high amount. And if the Census Bureau can undercount populations, what else have they undercounted? This is serious because there are so many people within the United States that depend on statistics in order to appropriate funds to certain districts. Our geographic information system, which is, is um, governed by the federal government and overseen by the state. I mean, I'm sorry. It's governed by the state government and overseen by the federal government. So our geographic information system actually tells certain communities where they identify these impoverished, impoverished communities and say, okay, well, we have 10,000 people who are impoverished in this community so if you're undercounting a specific uh geographic location or a demographic that means that in certain areas those people who you're undercounting they're not going to get the resources that they are they should be entitled to according to the state because state funds and federal funds, federal funds are distributed to the state. The state receives them through the state controller. The state controller then issues it to the treasury. The treasury then releases it to the certain districts within that state or the certain counties. So if you were in, say, Shelby County in Tennessee, that's one county who is receiving from funds from the state of Tennessee. But you're only allocated a certain amount of funds based off of your need of those funds. So if you're miscounting a certain demographic, which is why United States Census is relying on through the geographic information system in order to disperse funds to certain communities through the state and federal government, this misrepresentation of population is unethical and unequal so i want to show you all something too um here is another article this is okay so i guess is that is that the same one no that one isn't the same one Actually, what they did now, now let me see something. See, now this is going to make, this actually makes me want to write another article. Because they use two of the same, two different articles. And 
Hold on, let me see. Here's another article. Okay, here we go. At least we have NBC News. They didn't change up, right? So NBC News have an article from the 2020 census that undercounted Black, Latino, and Indigenous populations. So it says the findings continue a long-standing struggle for the Bureau with counting underrepresented groups while overcounting non-Hispanic white people. Many of them live in hard-to-reach areas such as rural communities and areas with limited access to the internet. The data released Thursday was the result of two internal analysis and collected data through a sample survey of demographic records. See, this is just another way for them to just say, okay, we couldn't reach those people. But how many times has this happened? I mean, because we see all too many times where people are using, they use the scripture, the word of God to justify their means to an end. If people are out here doing things to justify their means to an end, how many times has this occurred? This, you telling me this is the first time this occurred? So wait a minute. I'm trying to remember what do they call a person that's speeding, that's caught for the first time. A speeder, right? But is, is it the chances of them speeding for the first time? Is that their first time that they got... They, they were speeding because to my knowledge, just because you got caught speeding for the first time, that doesn't mean that that's your first time speeding. You just got caught speeding for the first time. So if you're the United States Census Bureau, who the entire United States depends on in order to distribute funds, in order to help communities receive the funds that need to be allocated to those communities, according to information that is listed in the Geographic Information System, the GIS, you mean to tell me that this is the first time this has ever occurred. See, now we got to talk about accountability and ownership again. See, I'm all for accountability and ownership because it is a difficult process to be accountable and to take ownership. But God wants us to get into the habit of being accountable and to take ownership for our actions. If, if, you know, my house was burglarized, guess, oh Lord God, they out there down the street somewhere out here. God, I just pray that you will help these people, help them to stop hurting each other, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. It is sealed in your blood. Amen. So what's important to understand here is that God wants us to take accountability and ownership. The way that we take accountability and ownership is making sure that your actions are is something that you are accountable for. So if my like I said, when my house was burglarized, I just felt like, you know, okay, that happened to me. And you know what? That was my fault. I should have had tighter security. 
And no, everything isn't your fault. Some things you go through in life to for it to be a testimony in your life. You help other people get through something. So you may not know, like one this this one lady I was talking to at church, she said, you know, my she said, my story is not as I, my story is not as strong as some people. I haven't went through a lot of stuff in my life. I just had a few um a few things happen to me here and there, but it wasn't too much of nothing. And I said, you know what? It's okay. Because guess what? What you may be calling a little bit too much of nothing may be a lot to somebody else. So don't look at your situation and feel like you, you haven't went through this or you haven't overcame this and you haven't overcame that. People look up to you. You don't know who looking up to you right now. You don't know who paying attention to you right now. You don't know who, who God is using you to provide hope to. You might not have nothing. You might not even have a, a pot to cook in. But guess what? There are people looking up to you knowing how to get around not having a pot to cook in. I remember we ain't used to have food sometimes and I'd just be so upset with my mom and I'm like, well, my daddy gave you all this money. What did you do with it? I just did not never understand that. And so we had potatoes and 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 um some cookie dough. So my uncle girlfriend made some us some fried potatoes and some cookies. And that's what we ate. And it was good. And I still remember it. So, <laughs> like, I'm 40 years old now. Like, I still remember eating them potatoes. Because she seasoned them. And it was only, like, four or five potatoes. And it was so good. With ketchup and onions. So, I mean, that, that was real good. I remember times when we, when, when I was with... Well, was with my um with my ex and we had to walk to the store and we could get back home. We want to cook everything we just bought. I just want some spinach out the can. Can you please season it real good? I want some spinach. The spinach was so fire. So good. Just every little bit of food that you that you like when you working hard, when you had to walk to go get this food and you want something right now, right now, you know what you want to cook everything. But when you get in the house and put it up, look, I, I'm just about to eat this right now. I, we can cook tomorrow. I just want to eat some of everything. So you might not have a pot to cook with, but guess what? People looking up to you for not having a pot to cook with, but still out here making it. You making it work because God is using you to make it work. So quit being weak because you strong. And when you feel weak, God's what? His power is made perfect in your weakness. So I'm at the two hour mark. I'm going to see y'all on Sunday. Let me go ahead and pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing us to discuss it today, Lord God. Thank you for those people that chimed in and listened. Um, and please forgive me if I don't, don't make comments back to people that respond. Um,
But God, I just thank you right now. We give you glory, praise, and honor so much. And we just ask that you continue to allow us to be able to see this world and see people the way that you see and hear them, God. So we're not dependent on our own understanding, but in all of our ways, we are acknowledging you so you can direct our paths. God, we want to see and hear things with your eyes and ears so we can depend on your perspective, Lord God. And we are not judging things from our carnal minds, but from the spiritual perspective that you have instilled in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, allow the Holy Spirit to take permanent residence inside of us, remove obstacles and barriers out of our path. But most importantly, God, please let your will be done. Not ours, but yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is still in your blood. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining me. I will see you all on Sunday. You have a good night.